Hey guys, Ian here with another episode of Unleash and Unhinged, the podcast where we talk about all things dog. Dog training, dog behaviour, dog health, literally anything you can think about when it comes to dogs, we'll talk about on here. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in again. Today we've got my friend Kim Brophy on the way over from the States. Welcome, Kim. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Ian, for having me again. I'm glad to be here. No worries. Um, tell the tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is uh you do. So I am by practice um, and profession, a dog behavior consultant and educator to other professionals. Um, but um, I, I am informed by a background in applied ethology, uh, which is the study of the relationship between human and animal behavior and captive and domesticated species. And so really looking at anything from farms to zoos, laboratories. And then, of course, that happens to include our pets. We don't usually think about it, but any animal that is um, under direct human influence and control without the autonomy to go do their own thing falls into the category of an animal who we need to think about through the lens of applied ethology. So um, that's my bag. That's pretty cool. What's um, okay for somebody that doesn't know what ethology is? Come, yeah, be a little summary of that. Yeah, so ethology is the study of animal behavior from an evolutionary or biological perspective. And so really looking at behavior in the context of um, how behavior works in nature. So in nature, all animals are working to survive and they're subject to all of these natural principles like survival of the fittest and um, these checks and balances systems where the pressures and the opportunities in the environment are things that the animal has to learn how to adapt to and change their behavior in as an individual kind of developing through the course of their life um, in order to um, optimize their chances for success. Uh, and then what's interesting is that the system of survival of the fittest kind of selects the individuals who are doing the best at that game of life to pass their genes on to the next generation. So it's constantly giving you this descent with modification, kind of think generations of phones or cars, you know, fixes certain things that doesn't work. And then they add certain features that are working better or they upgrade those features that everyone likes that works real well. Well, nature's always doing the same kind of thing. Um, and so ethology is that study of that system, of that dynamic interplay, um, and then ultimately what kind of gets inherited and passed down um, genetically uh, in, in terms of the animal's behavior and then how that shows up as they meet their world and life. Yeah, nice. I mean, so essentially it's looking at, and I'm going to stuff this up. <laughs> like, so essentially what is being passed down through the for survival needs for the dogs and how the dogs are kind of how that's reflecting in like dogs today and animals today. Right. So, you know, it's interesting because if we think about dogs, we often kind of just forget that they're animals, right? Like we forget we're animals. We think like we've like cracked the system of, of nature and we're like above it and separate from it. It's not true, but that's what we tell ourselves. <laughs> and we have this idea that the same is true for like, 
animals that we've mastered and domesticated or our pets or what have you. Um, but they're still affected by all those kinds of principles. It's just a lot more complicated because like, for instance, like I was describing about a, a second ago, um, in nature, animals, all organisms are always being selected for what is the most fit and optimal for their own interests and adapt adaptability to conditions and survival. Same is when humans get in there and we start controlling who's breeding and who's not breeding. And we start pulling on this genetic string or that string because we like the way it looks or the way the coat feels or what have you, um, or a particular behavior we wanted them to do historically. It's not necessarily serving the animal's best interest anymore as far as adaptability or survival. It's serving what we want out of the dog's behavior. So if we look back over the course of the thousands of years we've spent as dogs, pals, and companions and surviving together, while it's been a very mutually beneficial relationship historically, over time, we did really exaggerate certain behavioral traits as well as physical traits that are not beneficial for the dog population. So we've kind of violated some basic tenets of natural laws just through the breeding and the artificial selection. And then of course, by keeping them in captivity, we've also violated some natural laws in terms of giving them the opportunity to meet their own needs by adapting to circumstances behaviorally. So it's really complicated. And the irony is you and I both know is that when someone goes and thinks about hiring a dog trainer because they're having behavior problems, this isn't stuff that gets brought up and talked about, right? This isn't stuff that gets introduced to the conversation. Everyone's talking about the best method to make your dog comply and be obedient with your commands and be a good dog instead of a bad dog. And no one's really talking about all of this wealth of, in, of stuff, of, you know, factors, contributing agents. Um, and then ultimately the fact that a lot of the behavior problems that we might be experiencing are either behaviors we bred them for that now we don't want <laughs> and they didn't choose for or ask for, um, or it's some evidence of some type of a welfare problem, which is even more concerning, right? So the animal has like really serious welfare issues that are showing up as what we would describe as behavior problems. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that, you know, I've studied, studied your course and learned a lot through that. And this is, it was, Something I was aware of, but what your course did brilliantly was just highlight it even more and put really shine the lens on it. So many of the issues we'll work with, like yourself and I will get called for, like you say, they're not something that we should necessarily just dive in and start training the dog to do something different or stop the dog from doing because that dog's behavior is well, meeting the need of that dog at the mm -hmm. time. And that need is something that is are coming it's a, it's a need it's a fundamental need of the individual that if we just ignore or or unaware of or what for whatever reason it doesn't get addressed mm -hmm. then we're not going to resolve the problem and there's a chance like you say it that you'd be a genuine welfare issue Right, right. And so that, I think that needs to be kind of the new model of our jobs and why we're, you know, kind of trying to get people to think about the process of getting help with dogs behaviors, more family dog mediation, where we're really looking at like what's actually happening for both parties, both species, and then what can we do to meet the needs at the core of both parties in order to resolve any dysfunction or problem that's happening, as opposed to this kind of top-down model that we've had, where it's like, I don't like the dog's behavior. I want to change it. 
I human hire other human who are going to be the, you know, the puppeteers up here to the puppet of the dog, pull the right strings, make the dog do the stuff we want there, check, done, train the dog. Um, and it, it's so minimizing of the dog as a sentient being and of the experience they're having. And oftentimes what we call the success or the effective results is at the dog's expense, right? So we can get the dog to stop doing A or start doing B, but the dog is paying that price, you know? And we might see that that quiet dog laying on the bed that they've been trained to stay on whenever someone walks in the front door and say, look how good he is. But what might be happening inside that dog is a tremendous amount of internal conflict, frustration, learned helplessness, anxiety, things like that um, at the hands of our conditioning. So I think sometimes we don't realize that you can have really good training that does what we set out to do that works, that still should raise a red flag for us in our minds and in our hearts, right? That it would be um, concerning or deleterious to the dog's welfare. Yeah. Uh, there's um, something I'll exp- I try to explain well, explain to all of my team and the people I work with, it's whether I say it to the people I work with or not is a different matter. But like, there's a question that goes through my head before I start trying to influence a dog's behavior. It's should I try to influence the dog's behavior? You know, mm-hmm. in this situation, right? If, you know, we might get a phone call and somebody will say, well, my dog's aggressive in the dog park. And I think traditionally dog trainers would have gone in, taken the dog to the dog park, and try to make sure that that dog behaved. And I'm going to put inverted, like, you know, comments here, like, um, good in the dog park. Right. And instead, like, the first thing that goes through my head is, does the, should the dog be in the dog park? You know, is, right. is, is the dog park meeting the needs of the individual? Um, if it's being aggressive, instantly my, my brain goes to probably not, right? Right. <laughs> and then, looking at and zooming out and looking at that bigger picture of, of going, okay, well, what does the dog park mean to the dog? What does the dog park mean to the family? Like why are the family so, why did the family feel like they needed to be at the dog park? Was it because they're just complying with the social norm of you're a bad dog owner if you don't go to the dog park? Or was it that their previous dog liked it? So they assumed, was it because it's actually about them getting their social needs met with a cup of coffee with their friend? Like, mm-hmm. But that's that, like you touched on that phrase earlier, and I've used it a lot, uh, that family dog mediator, because you do, we should look at the entire family and what are their needs, including the dog, of course, and mediate and come to a conclusion that essentially meets as many needs as possible. Yes, there's going to be compromise from probably all parties. Like, that's the reality, but mm-hmm. as few as possible. Sure. Right. It isn't interesting that historically in our industry, it's been seen as a failure to make those compromises and allowances that actually serve everyone's interests practically and most efficiently. But if you're not proving that you can make that dog do A, B, C, D, and F, then you're not, you know, you're not a good dog trainer. Like shortcuts were kind of looked down upon here as we're, you know, carving out an entire like set of hacks in the dog family dog mediation course, right? Like we're really trying to encourage people to find those practical solutions that don't necessarily involve training 
Um, but I thought it'd be fun actually to take the example you just gave, and I'm going to break it down briefly for everybody, just with the legs model. So we can kind of introduce this here. Yeah, and we awesome. can talk about the legs of the humans and the legs of the dog and that dog park example. So um, most listeners, you like, <laughs> you're going to have to explain what the legs are. I was just going to say, I'm going to say most listeners probably have no idea what legs is. So I'll explain what that is. So um, I kind of referred to it in the abstract a few minutes ago. Um, but so all animals have what's called a phenotype and that's a fancy word for legs legs is a way to think about it in a really practical tangible way instead of some scientific term so what informs any being's behavior is their learning their experiences and education they've had in their life their environment their external conditions their genetics that they brought to the table from the day that they're born that design them inside and out behavior and physical form and then also and their sensory perceptions and then their self. So the internal conditions of their age, sex, health, nutrition, illness, injury, disease, disability, um, individual personality traits, all those things. So all those moving parts are going on for all of us and for all dogs and for literally every organism on the planet. So we, we tend to kind of say, take that dog park example. And we say, okay, I'm going to call up a dog trainer. I don't like my dog's behavior. I am assuming because of the conditioning we've had in the pet industry that it must be an L problem. It's a learning problem. It's a training problem. So I call a dog trainer to come and introduce new learning to change the dog's behavior because that's what we do. That must be what's going on. So let's just say, for example, that we have a um, one-year-old Conicorso intact male. So the Conicorso, the genetics, the G part. One-year-old intact male, S, internal conditions, okay? Just hit sexual maturity, just has gone through the very peak of it and is now thinking he's all that in a bag of chips because he's not a little puppy anymore, right? So he's starting to feel his Connie Corso kicking in, right? So the lens that he's been looking at the dog park through for all of these times that he's been going to the dog park as an, a puppy individual, suddenly not the same lens as a teenager Connie Corso, right? And so maybe in addition, he's been learning in that environment of the dog park when he goes, goes there with his family that it's either, you know, be picked on or pick on, which is honestly how a lot of the dog park environments work, right? It's kind of like who checks who and who gets to say, you know, I can push you around and, you know, who has to be on the receiving end of that. We have a lot of young dogs in dog parks largely. And so they tend to have a little bit of like a mosh pit social interaction, you know, situation going on. Um, and so he may have been kind of getting checked the whole time he was a puppy by the older dogs who were just kind of keeping him in his place, so to speak. And then now that he's kind of coming into his own, he's got a little chest hair growing and stuff. He's thinking, all right, then, you know, I, I can actually start to interact a little differently. And he's, he's feeling these new hormones. He's feeling himself being like, you know what? I do have a little bit of genetically selected step up to the plate in me. I'm a guardian, right? So I'm not supposed to be the guy who's tucking tail and running into the corner. So the same environment might then be totally perceived differently as a result of the interaction between his S, those internal conditions with him hitting sexual maturity, and the genetics, which turns on something called an emergent behavior, where suddenly something that was not relevant, appropriate for the developmental phase of puppyhood 
is starting to come into play as a young adolescent moving towards adulthood who needs to figure out how he fits into this social tapestry. So he starts responding to these dogs in different ways when they check him than he did as a puppy. And he starts giving it back to them, defending himself, or maybe even deciding I'm going to wear the hat of the checker and walk around and give everybody else a little bit of grief because this is the environment, the social environment that I've been learning in the whole time I've been going. So that, of course, is just one possible example of all of those things and how they can happen in one given moment in a dog's life. And those legs for that dog would have looked different six months ago, and they'll look different three years from now, you know? And then, of course, we have the whole human legs, and we could talk about all of the things like you said. What are they getting out of the environment? Maybe they're getting a social environment that they really like that works very well for them because their S is they're in their twenties and they go there to meet girls and, you know, hang out with their buddies and then they go get a beer after or whatever. Right. So for them, it's like, Oh, I like going to the dog park. And this has been something great that I've enjoyed with my dog so far. Suddenly it's not working. Why call the dog trainer to throw some L learning at it, but maybe it's not a learning issue at all. Maybe for that dog, we're having an EGS interaction that's what's cause, causing the problems. And it doesn't have a whole heck of a lot to do with the learning. So why go to the dog park right now, right? Why don't we work on developing him into his manhood in an environment that's not an accidental catalyst for him learning to be a bully, right? And then we can yeah. sort some of that stuff out later in terms of his social life. Yeah. And we see that example. It just, and, and, and if not that exact example, we see variations of that. like. Mm-hmm endlessly endlessly like there is uh there's a local park near me that as i walk past and you couldn't pay me to go in there but as as i walk past i can see the dog that i will i will meet in six months because mm-hmm. it's just it's just inevitable it's this endless chain uh, they put me out of business if they stop going there um <laughs> <laughs> and i would probably be happier like because yeah. no dog was getting into the shit but From a dog training perspective, we can do so much by thinking that we are going to change with, by by putting the dog in that situation, by just ignoring the, the legs of the situation and just thinking that we as dog trainers can manipulate this and change the dog's behavior in that situation. I think we can just do so much harm to, to everybody because Mm -hmm. That dog's behavior, I mean, there's communicating, like I said like earlier, like those, it's communicating their needs. And we just ignore that and we go, right, mate, you need to learn how to comply with how we deem it to be socially appropriate in a dog park. Then there's a really high chance. I mean, take, take your example of the kind of Corso Mastiff. Like there's a really high chance that that Mastiff potentially has does harm. That is then a dog that may get a council order on itself. It's got mm-hmm. a dog that gets a fine. It's got another dog that gets injured, potentially traumatized, and another owner that may also carry that trauma as well. There's mm-hmm. a real danger of just by us trying to be this all-powerful dickhead dog trainer, just, just have a word with yourself and go, mate, like we actually don't need to be there. It's, right, right. It's not the right thing to do. Right. Well, and you know what, like what you said there, like checking our human egos, which we've been fostered to develop around dogs. So I don't criticize anyone who's like, all right, I'm supposed to like tell the dog how it is and tell them what to do and make them obedient. Like that's been drilled into our head for how long, right? That that's what you do as a person. That's definitely what you do as a dog trainer. 
And even positive reinforcement trainers kind of accidentally went along with the narrative that like the goal is still obedience. We just have a different way of getting there. But the, the idea that we are going to go into that situation, let's just like play the tape through for a minute. Let's pretend we go into that situation and we're going to correct the dog for showing ritualized at this point signals. So warning signals, he's not attacking anybody. He's growling, he's barking, he's chasing down, he's doing some nipping, he's doing some posturing, stuff like that. Definitely making some dogs angry and some owners nervous, but he hasn't hurt anybody, right? And maybe we go in there and we say, all right, buddy, like, you know, don't do that bad dog. And we correct the dog every time that happens. And we're, you know, giving him pets or cookies, don't bring cookies into dog parks or whatever. Um, just PSA there, guys. Um, but, you know, we're doing whatever we're doing positively to try to encourage the right choices. And we're going to punish the wrong choices. We're going to approach this operantly. Well, we're not a dog. So we're going to miss a lot of the signals, no matter how good you are at reading dog behavior. I don't care. We're not a dog. So we're going to miss some of the minutia of the signals that are being set in that, sent in that environment. And it could be that maybe there's a couple other players in that environment that have been really challenging him, pushing him around since he came onto the scene. And he might actually be, now that he is an intact one-year-old Kane Corso going to the dog park, probably has a bullseye on his head. And so he's probably being targeted by all these other male dogs that are in there, whether they're intact or not. And so he's feeling the need to put something out that signals, don't mess with me, right? Don't challenge me. So what if we take that voice from him and then that actually puts him in greater danger where he's suppressing the signals, right? He's not telling them how it is up front and making sure that he's clear about that in the more subtle communication. And so he's taking it because he doesn't want to get punished by us. He doesn't want to piss off mommy or daddy or the dog trainer. And so he's just muting all of those signals. And then all of a sudden, we've accidentally created a situation where we're going to have an explosive knockdown drag out fight in the middle of the park because nobody saw it coming because, you know, we corrected all that stuff. So, I mean, it's just one possible example, but there's a million ways we can send a behavior sideways and think we're doing the right thing when we're really not. Well, I think just coming down to a goal that I think we should stop trying to achieve is the narrative of trying to achieve a good dog. Like, because mm -hmm. even if, we, say, for example, say we suppress the behavior, say we managed to keep that dog in the environment, but they, and they no longer did that behavior, that's still a crap life for the dog, right? Mm -hmm. So he's just there. He's like, ah, this sucks, but I can't talk, right? Right. Just, just there, just, and I think I say this a lot, but we get dogs, pet dogs, right? These are, and I hate the word pet, but and I know you do too, but yeah, uh, we get these dogs for companion reasons. And there's really only one fundamental goal is to make us and them happy. It's mm -hmm. the only goal, right? It and should be, right. It's not about them trying to be good for you or good, good in general. They, their behavior, they're not. They're not looking at it through that moral lens. They're not looking at it through right and wrong. They're just, for them, it's just behavior and they're expressing how they feel. Mm -hmm. And if we look at behavior, their behavior, probably better to look at people's behavior as well through this lens, just as information and go, mm -hmm. cool, thank you for letting me know. I don't actually have any other agenda than you being okay. Mm -hmm. So if you're communicating that you're not then it's not necessarily on me to make you be okay in this scenario. My job's just to make you be okay. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I, there's so many situations because of that whole pet concept that we put dogs in where it's a really unfair ask, like right off the bat. But because we've been conditioned to think all dogs are by definition pets, even though most dogs were not bred to be pets. And yet that's what we think. Right. So we keep putting them in all these high pressure pet situations and then we're like, why isn't it working? Why are things going wrong? And and then, like you said, then we put the dog in this weird position where like they have to go against their own grain or they have to go against us in some way. Um, but so many dogs are either suppressing a lot of their natural behaviors and not able to follow that own internal compass, which is honestly the birthright of every being on the planet. You should be allowed to follow your own internal compass within the the parameters of whatever your species is. If you're part of a social group, there are parameters and rules to that. And it's not that that doesn't come into play, but even that is meant to serve your own interests and your own social security and ultimately survival through that cooperative process. But it should be serving you. You should be able to follow that lead. And then, you know, the other thing that happens is, and this is where I think, you know, we have to really challenge the assumptions that things like positive reinforcement training can't do any harm because I've seen so many dogs brains just absolutely blunderized through nothing but positive reinforcement because we're able to use external reinforcers to condition behaviors or sequences of behavior and the animal performs the behavior because they've been so heavily reinforced for the behavior, but they don't even know why they're doing it. And that's kind of opening up a whole chasm of insanity, right? So I'll use an example that I like a lot for like for this for humans of us voluntarily, willingly, and even enthusiastically engaging in a behavior that's against our interests and goals and needs, cell phones and social media. How much time are all of us, most of us wasting on these little black boxes interacting with random acquaintances? groups, personalities, whatever, online, instead of being in relationship to the people that are actually in the room with us or the animals that are actually in the room with us, consumed by whether someone liked our post, what their comment was, whether or not we have to then defend something based on our position and our ego. Like, And I don't know about you, but there have been more than one occasion where I've caught myself picking up my phone and engaging in that process of social media when I don't actually want to yeah, because I feel a compulsion because of the incredible algorithms aimed at training our behavior to play the game of social media. It is designed with all of the scientific learning theory in mind to ensure that we keep engaging and it hijacks our lives our brains, our emotions, and our relationships. And yet we find ourselves doing it anyway, even when we know it's not good for us. Drugs are the same way. So anytime we can hijack that dopamine system, you can control the behavior of the individual and have that not serving the interests of the individual. And a lot of positive reinforcement training, sadly, can just be hijacking that dopamine system. Yeah, like a trainer that's exceptionally good at manipulating behavior can achieve that with the dog and like you said like before they do and i say they do because i'm not that good a trainer right in that sense right i'm just not like i'm that's not my skill set but before they do they really in my opinion should be asking should i should i that's right going back to what you said earlier about that absolutely we should always say 
should I, even though I can, should I? Yeah. Like it's, uh, you know, before I really lent on this kind of methodology to consulting and what have you, I, you know, it was a flex, you know, I, I would, I was definitely a flex on how well I could change the dog's behavior. I just don't care about that anymore. It's not. Yeah, me too. Just not a win. But, but that's we're we're literally made to think like, well, I, part of it is the conditioning, and part of it is just there's some element about our ability to control the behavior of others that's internally reinforcing, and yeah. that th- that probably goes into our own species ethological roots. But it, it we should check that when we feel that feeling of power. Yeah. And like, yeah, check me out. Look what I got that dog to do. You know, like we should go, hmm, maybe I should question that and at least put it through a filter of, is this the right thing to do? Yeah. Oh God. Like, but that, that is a real thing. Like our species is so addicted to power and mm-hmm. control. And, you know, we can't, it's definitely a balance act, isn't it? Because there's, there's, um, when, we do need to be kind of the shepherd and the guide for our dogs through life. Like they live in a human world and that human world is evolving so fast. And Mm -hmm. we do put our dogs in, whether we like it or not, they're in situations that are extremely unnatural. And so Mm -hmm. it's our role to guide them and Mm -hmm. help them through it. Mm -hmm. But like at the same time, not be that micromanager that, basically says, Hey, look, this is the situation. And this is exactly how you need to behave. We really need to go, Hey, look, there's this situation in your life and we kind of need to work together here to find out how we can navigate this as best as possible. Because it's no, there's no carbon copy of every scenario. Like I don't know about you, but doesn't matter how many consults and training sessions and dogs I've met, I've never done the same job twice. No, me neither. No, me neither. And that's the, I mean, and it should be that way rather than a, a, a protocol for this, or this is how step one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you fix blah, blah, blah behavior, right? Which we've been really obsessed with that kind of like, what are the um, different methodologies, right? That people use, like, how does one teach a dog to do this or not do this? Like, there is no one way, right? It's a matter of meeting that individual where they are. And the distinction you're really making is between like micromanagement and upper management. Yeah. And in good upper management, you control the situation, not the individuals. You don't need to control the individuals because in social animals, we are all wired to listen to someone who's worth listening to. So if someone has information that we need, they have intel, insight, great decision-making ability, they're always taking care of the interests of all of the individuals in the social group, we are voluntarily looking to them for guidance, information, and direction because that's what serves our own interests. So it's like, how do we teach ourselves and our clients and each other how to be that individual, how to be as much as we possibly can, that upper management individual that is just aware of all of those moving parts. Now, to be honest, some people are just going to have a hard time doing that. I have, was thinking about a client talking with one of our other team members today. They, they are the nicest couple, but they just have no situational awareness and they have one dog 
who has way too much situational awareness. And it makes that dog feel like, well, then I should be driving because these people are incompetent and they're not paying attention to what's happening on the road. So then they get that feeling like we would get if we were on a passenger bus and the driver's like, and they're kind of driving off the road a little bit and like not aware that like, you know, people are trying to walk in front of them and they almost just ran somebody over and they've almost hit three stop signs. And, you know, like they're, they're just not paying attention. We feel like for our own survival needs, we need to jump in and grab the wheel, right? Somebody needs to jump in and grab the wheel. When dogs step up to try to take control of circumstances, that's what's really happening. It's a reflexive survival need. It's not about your dogs trying to dominate you. It's that we're not making them actually feel safe and secure enough, like a like a parent in the room or upper management. That's yeah, exactly that. Like that the thing that I will always, you know, in terms of every single dog you ever work with, there's a real, there's a baseline of you have to make sure that they have a sense of security, a sense of safety before everything else, because mm-hmm. if that's not there, then nothing else matters. And that dog, you know, that is looking at the world around them and going, this shit's out of control. Like, I have no idea what's going on. And they're not, like you said, they're not trying to be dominated. They're not trying to dominate them. They're not trying to do anything other than just get some stability back in their life because their sense of security has been compromised. Mm-hmm. And that is what I mean by like, it's kind of our role to be the guide, be that upper management. I love that. Term. Yeah. I'm stealing that. Um, yeah. But like that. Yeah. Like that's our role. And if we don't provide that for our dogs, then there's look, there's going to be some dogs. Don't get me wrong that I've got one in my life. Like if I didn't, if I wasn't upper management for him, honestly, he would not give a shit. He does not care. I've got the other dog in my life that if I'm not upper management for him, the world breaks down, right? He, yeah. He's living, he, he's a Spaniel living in, a, in the busiest suburb in the country. And there's things that he wants to do that we can, he can only do in reality in certain contexts. Mm-hmm. And so my role is to understand what his needs are Okay, how do I meet them and find appropriate outlets for them? Otherwise, his anxiety goes through the roof, his frustration goes through the roof, his health goes through the roof, like mm-hmm. down. <laughs> and then his behavior is, is reflective of that, right? So if his anxiety is high and his frustration is high and his health is low, then his behavior is, if, if somebody was just looking at with that stereotypical model of dog training, they go, bad dog, he's a right. bad dog. Or he's not being a bad dog whatsoever. It's just the fact that his fundamental needs haven't been met. And some people find, I, I completely agree. It's like, I had this dog in my life for two years before I got it right. And I do this shit every day. Mm-hmm. And I, it's not for the lack of trying, but I just was trying to piece that puzzle together and go, how the hell do I meet this dog's need and mine and come to a situation? Like only last night, me and Emma were laying in bed and we're like, he's getting there. <laughs> He's getting there. <laughs> <laughs> You'll prove us wrong today. But <laughs> well, you know, you were mentioning that um, you guys are going to be bringing a human child right into your lives. Congratulations again on that. And um, I, I think you are going to find raising a kid, all of these same concepts apply. I mean, and the same sad phenomenon is happening for a generation of kids right now. 
that has happened for dogs in that we are worried about compliance, at least here in the States. I don't know what it's like there, but worried about compliance and good behavior and obedient behavior. And frankly, a lot of kids needs aren't being met. They're not outside anymore. They're not being active social animals. They're expected to be sedentary, um, not disruptive. They don't have multi-generational social environments like our species has for generations and dogs as well. There's so many deficits that we as parents then have to try to fill back up and provide. Um, but it's an uphill battle then, even as we're interacting with schools or other kind of authority figures that the kids are going to end up dealing with in one capacity or another. And the cultural model for dogs and for human children is so far off the mark for really being an acknowledgement of their comprehensive legs. Um, I'm starting to hear some good things on mainstream news here um, just lately this month, some discussions of the fact that our mental health crisis uh, is, is related to the fact that we have cut ties with our natural roots, our social natural roots, our, you know, community cultural natural roots. Um, and so it is showing up across the board as a loneliness epidemic. Um, and mental health crises because we're lost in the same way that our dogs can feel lost. And so I think it's another reason why it's hard for some of our clients to meet their dog's needs is they themselves don't have their own needs really met. Um, and, and we want the dog to lighten things up. And sometimes the dog becomes a mirror of just how dysfunctional stuff is. Um, and then we're in the position of trying to figure out what to do about it. So I, I realize most families and most professionals don't have one bad intention in their body, right. When it comes to their dogs, but I do think we have to start, well, continue changing the conversations, you know, and the models. Yeah. Going back to like, I mean, it's a big topic, but you know, one of the things we'll try and work with all the time with people is how do we bring back that connection between you and your dog for so many reasons, right? Because one, I mean, on a top level, just so that you can communicate with them, right? So that you can actually have the relationship, you understand what they're saying and really importantly to the client, they understand what you're saying. Um, but that level of communication cuts so deep, you know, like, once you get that, that's actually the reason you got the dog. Like, how right. do you have that bond? And we'll get clients call us and through no fault of their own, they're so stressed that the idea of investing time and energy into connection is just mm -hmm. so far down the list. And I'm like, that's sad, but I can't have, okay, I can't. There's only so much I can do with that. Like, right. They, they don't have the bandwidth, you know, so many people don't have the bandwidth. They don't have the bandwidth for their own human relationships they have in their lives because they themselves aren't okay. You know, um, I've been saying for a long time, close to 10 years now that dogs for me are like a canary in the coal mine. They're like an indicator species for ours, mm -hmm. you know, and like they're there's because they can't hide it and suppress it and put social media pictures out there that look like everything's just great, even though the person's coming apart at the scenes behind the scene. Like we see it. Right. We just they're giving us the behavior that they've got um, unless we've effectively, you know, conditioned it away or suppressed it. And um, so there's some evidence of what's wrong with our situation, I think, in our dog population that we might well take some insight from when we're looking in the mirror. Yeah. Well, I mean, you and I have both been saying that this for a few years now. Yep. Yep. But this is, 
you know, you're doing some amazing work in affecting our industry. And that I love that approach um, because, you know, you can only, we, just by consulting, you can only affect one person at a time. Um, but if you go and do what you've done and go and affect the people that are consulting, you can affect so many. And well, and I know you're working on some stuff for the same reasons, right? Like if we can yeah. reach more professionals, then we can have a better, better ripple reach. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's uh, I'm, that is a fantastic point to end on. I mean, it's gone. It got, I love that. That went a bit deeper yeah. than I, I actually expected. I really, really appreciate it. So yeah, I loved it too. Love these conversations. And I'm glad that um, people are having them and I'm even more excited to think people are listening to them and then sharing them with friends. So hopefully any listener that's been enjoying this and getting some um, truth bombs kind of dropped into their lap that feel meaningful and are resonating, you know, we'll share it with someone else. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this week, guys. If you ever want to ask questions, give feedback, or just provide some suggestions regarding the podcast, find me on Ian Shivers Dog Advocate on Instagram. I'll be happy to help. If you're feeling really generous, leave us a review on whatever platform it is that you're listening to this podcast on. And if you want to nerd out more with us, then find our sponsors because they're the ones that make all of this possible. See you next week. This episode is sponsored by Canine Caregivers. I've had so many people reach out to me over the years, not knowing where to turn to online for reliable and consistent advice on how to raise a healthy and happy dog. The information out there is hard to navigate. It's hard to know who to trust and who not to trust. And frankly, some of it is just downright dangerous. That's why we created Canine Caregivers a place where you can come and get educational resources and access a supportive community founded on the care approach for people just like you, whether you've just brought a dog into your life or you've got a dog that is experiencing some unwanted behaviors. The content is updated regularly and we constantly keep in touch with our members to make sure that we are bringing relevant and up-to-date content that truly matters to you. There's different tiers of membership for different needs. So you can be sure that you don't have to break the bank to access the information that can literally make all the difference to the quality of life between you and your dog. Head to caninecaregivers.com.au to learn more.